Okay, um, let's, let's pray and then we're going to turn to the Bible today. God, thank you so much that you're with us. God, thank you that you've got a heart for humanity. You created us, God, created in your image. And you've given us a purpose. You've given us life. You've given us breath. And you've given us resources. God, I pray t- today as we look at um, the subject of the rich and the poor, I pray, God, that you would speak to us. I pray as we look at these verses, God, and James, that they'd impact our lives the way you want them to. Please, God, help us to hear and help me to speak. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen. Okay, let me just start by painting a picture. Go with me in this. Okay, imagine your life, imagine your house, imagine your finances, and then apply these thoughts to that. Take out of all of your furniture out of your home except for one table, a couple of chairs, and use a blanket and pads for your bed. Take away all of your clothing except for your oldest dress or your suit, your shirt or one blouse, and only have one pair of shoes for the family. Empty the pantry and the refrigerator except for a small bag of flour, some sugar, salt, and a few potatoes, some onions, and a dish of dried beans. Dismantle your bathroom, shut off all the running water, remove all your electrical wiring from your house. Take away your house itself and move into the family tool shed. And then move this tool shed, your house, to a shanty town. Cancel all your subscriptions to newspapers, magazines, book clubs. No great loss because you can't read anyway. And leave only one radio for the whole shanty town. Move the nearest hospital or clinic 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. And throw away your bank books, stock certificates, pension plans, and insurance policies. Give the head of the family a few small acres to cultivate on, from which they can raise a few hundred dollars a year of cash crops, one third of which will pay the landlord and one tenth of which pay the money lenders. Lop off 25 years or more from your life expectancy. Now, this is what normal humanity feels like. Did you know that globally, 640 million people live without adequate shelter? 400 million people have no access to safe water. 270 million have no access to health services. 50% of the world's population, 50% of the world's population, that's 300 billion people in this world, live on less than £1.20 a day. That's that's not like some people, that's half of the world's population live on less than £1.20 a day. 20% of the population in developing nations consume 80% of the world's resources. More than 1.2 billion people earn less than 60 pence a day. One in every two children in the world are living in poverty. 852 million people are hungry. And 10.6 million died in 2003 alone before they reached the age of five. That's roughly 29,000 kids a day. That is the harsh realities of the world that we live in. And, you know, whether we call ourselves Christians or just for the very fact we're human beings, that's That's unsettling. That's concerning. It, it, could, it could become motivating for us if we let it. 
Or equally, we could just close our ears to the thoughts and say, well, it can't be that bad, really. Because the reality is the world that we live in is often not the real world. The world that we live in, we hear about things that we all talk about. We watch media that talks about things that concern us, typically. Very few media channels report on imbalance in in the, the realities of the actual world. There are wars go on that we don't hear about. There are crises, and we're all concerned about the swine flu. Um, excuse me, I've got a slight cold. But the fact is, there are things that are far more horrendous, sweeping the world at a far greater scale, and you and I don't even hear about them because we've been immunized against them. Because that sort of stuff's available to us. We're not living in the real world, really. We're living in a Western world. that's padded us, that has narrowed us, that is focused on our stuff. Some of it's not bad. But the thing is bad that we've forgotten the rest of the world. James, that we're studying in the Bible, we're going through the book of James, and in James you find some of the the toughest, hard-hitting verses you're going to find anywhere in the Bible that talk about the rich and the poor. And that's what we're going to be studying today. What does the Bible say in general about money? Well, many people misquote the Bible. They say, well, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Sorry, they say money is the root of all kinds of evil. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in and of itself is neutral. In and of itself, it's just a currency. It's just a resource. But the love of that resource is, according to the Bible, the root of all kinds of evil. It's not, God is not opposed to wealthy people. In fact, many of the people in the Bible that he worked with, many of the people in the Bible who are our heroes, Bible heroes, were incredibly wealthy. Examples. Abraham, by today's standards, he would be a multiple millionaire. Job was the wealthiest man in his time. And at the end of the book, he was even wealthier than he was at the beginning of the book. David and Solomon were the wealthiest kings who ever lived. Barnabas, known for his encouragement in the New Testament church, he was a wealthy man and he used his wealth to help the poor and resource the church. Joseph of Arimathea, very wealthy man. He made his own tomb available for Jesus to be buried in for three days. Then he rose. And the apostle Paul, he said, I know what it is to have an abundance. I know what it is to have nothing. But I've learned to be content. Paul knew seasons in life where he was incredibly wealthy. God has no problem with wealthy people. God does, however, he is opposed to our misuse or abuse of wealth. God wants us to learn how to use wealth wisely, no matter how much or how little we've got. And that's the gist of today's message. The book of James, given a bit of background to the context in which James was writing in, at the time, the New Testament times that James was writing in, in the the generation following Jesus' life, the fact is there was no middle class in these times that James was writing in. No middle class. There was the rich and there was the poor. And there was an increasing divide between the rich and the poor. 
to be honest, very similar into the situation we find ourselves in today. There is the rich and the poor. Now, we would think that applies, you know, some of the people in this auditorium are rich and some of them, no, no, no. Remember the statistics at the beginning. There's the rich, everyone in this auditorium, and then there's the poor. Huge proportion of our world. And that was the situation in James's day, except they had it in one community. We live in a very wealthy community. No matter what part of Edinburgh you're from, we're in a wealthy part of the world. But in James's time, he was writing to communities where in the same community, you had absolute poverty and absolute wealth existing in the same communities, next door neighbors to each other. And because of that, we have a real good insight into what God thinks about these things because of the microcosm in which James is writing to. So there was the rich and there was the poor. There was the great divide between the two. And in Bible times, the rich commonly oppressed the poor and took advantage of the poor. So here's my plan of action today. We're going to look at three financial facts that James gives us. And then we're going to look at four financial warnings about how we use our money that James warns us of. So number one, financial fact number one, people, poor people are often spiritually rich. It's not always the case, but commonly that is the case. The Jewish race um, that James was part of and that Jesus was born into and that James was writing to, the Jewish race had, a, had an opinion of wealth. They saw wealth as a blessing from God. Now, we would agree with that. The Bible teaches that. Wealth, prosperity, provision is a blessing. Poverty is a curse. However, it does not mean that those who have wealth are spiritual. And it also doesn't mean that those who do not have wealth are unspiritual. Often it is the case that people who have the least are more spiritual than people who have the most, even though wealth in and of itself is a blessing. It's interesting. It says in uh, James chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, the brother in humble circumstance ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. In James 2.5, he echoes a sentiment. He says, has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? James here alludes to the reality that people who are poor are often more spiritual than those who are rich. Physical poverty, prosperity can often result in spiritual poverty. And spiritual prosperity is often found most abundant among those who are physically poor. And you look around us in the world and the world that says this. You find places in Africa and India where people are alive spiritually. Yet you find this Western culture typically it is quite religious, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's alive spiritually. People go through the motions. It doesn't necessarily mean it's life-changing. It's not vibrant. We've got confidences in so many other things other than in God, although quite often we will declare ourselves to be religious. And this is the reality that James is speaking about. It's just an observed fact that people who are poor are often more spiritual because they're dependent on God. <clears throat> and tragically, people who are wealthy are often less dependent on God even though he may be the one who blessed them to enable them to become wealthy in the first place. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, 
For it was he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. This happens all the time. We see people, oftentimes, they're at rock bottom in life. They turn to God, he helps them. They start getting a better attitude. They start working hard. God motivates them with creative ideas. They start a company, they do well. And they end up becoming wealthy. And when they're wealthy and comfortable, then they forget the God who blessed them to enable them to get there in the first place. And this cycle is a human cycle that we all go through. It's recorded in the Bible, but also we don't need it even in the Bible. We just look around us at the world, and that's the realities of what we're like. We're ungrateful. We turn away from God so quickly. I've got a dear friend in this city who became a Christian when he was about 17, 18 years old. He walked in off the street, in owning all that he had to, only owning what he had to wear. And he had a big hole in his leather shoes. And he walked in off the street, an alcoholic. He turned up at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. He started dealing with the situation. And it, during that, he found God. He turned his life over to God. Anyway, that was when he was 18. <clears throat> Since then, he started walking with God, learning the Bible. He got himself a degree, started doing very well. He, today, he owns 100 properties in this part of the world. And today he's questioning whether God exists. It is the human cycle. When we've got nothing, we depend. But when we've got everything, we think we're still dependent. But analyze your faith. Are you really still dependent on God? Because often physical prosperity can get our eyes off where true life lies. Life is tragic for the person who has plenty to live on, but nothing to live for. Let me also say here, and this is an important point, that you get rich people who are poor spiritually, but you also get rich people who are rich spiritually. That's an important point to make. And equally, you get poor people who are rich spiritually, but equally you get poor people who are poor spiritually. Did you know that? So just because if if someone's poor doesn't mean that they're spiritually rich. Many people are poor and they're spiritually poor as well. In fact, the reason they are poor is because they've been dumb and they've made decisions. They've lived crazy lifestyles. They've turned their backs on God and they end up living in the results of their own actions. That's not anything to be admired. That's poor, poor people. The key is spiritual richness. That's the key. Whether you are rich or poor, spiritual wealth is good. If you're rich and rich, bingo. Use your wealth to make a difference because someone who's spiritually rich will use their physical riches to make an impact in the world. Listen to this. John, the Apostle John writes in 3 John, any chapter you want, verse 2, and he says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. That's an interesting verse. The Apostle John says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you will prosper and be in good health just as your your soul prospers. Let me ask you, if your physical prosperity was on a par with your spiritual prosperity, would you be a millionaire or a pauper? Or somewhere in between? Would you be loaded? Or would you be destitute? If your physical prosperity was the same as your soul prosperity. That's an interesting thought. This, this verse is talking about us having balance. 
This verse is talking about keeping things in balance. You see, it's dangerous to be someone who's got too much money, but not some spiritual wealth to handle it. That's a dangerous person. That money is just a dead end. That money's going to achieve nothing in this world. But when you've got money and you've got spiritual prosperity, you've got a winning combination. You can make a big impact. And the Apostle John says, your spiritual wealth, let it be the same as your so your physical wealth, let it be the same as your spiritual wealth, because then it will be safe. That's an interesting thought. Life should be in balance. In other words, before you go making financial plans, or should I say, as you make your financial plans for life, make sure you're also making spiritual plans in parallel, because they should be held in balance according to the Bible. Okay, so financial fact number one, physical poverty can often result in spiritual riches. Financial fact number two, wealth is temporary. Say that after me. Wealth is temporary. James 1, 10 and 11. Today, incidentally, we're going to go into James chapter 1, chapter 2, and we're going to dip into chapter 5 at the end in a couple of hours' time. James chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Like your nervous laugh. Very good. The one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like the wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, and its blossoms fail, and its beauties are destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So the reality is that riches are temporary. Now, you might ask yourself, well, James, why don't you write to the poor people and tell them that they're also going to fade away? Because the reality is all human beings are we're mortal. We do not live eternally in this body. That's a fact. The physical wealth we have doesn't last forever. So, James, could you not have written to the poor people and say that as well? Yeah, he could have, and that would equally be true. But he didn't need to, to be honest. Because oftentimes it's the rich that need reminded that life is temporary. Because many people are living in their wealth thinking like they're living forever. They, 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 would, they wouldn't say that with their mouth. Everyone acknowledges with their lips that they don't live forever. But many people, in, they can become deluded. Wealth can delude you to think that actually you're immortal. But it's not true. It's not the case. Queen Elizabeth uh, I of England in 1603 said this. This is what she said in her deathbed. She said, all my possessions for a moment in time. It's interesting how sharp focus comes often at the end of life. A 75-year-old billionaire called William Randolph Hearst said, uh, well, he, he talked to his people who, who worked with him, his servants and the people who were around his house, and he forbid them to mention death in his presence. 75-year-old billionaire called William Randolph Hearst. He forbid the people around him to mention death. Unfortunate second name Hearst he's got. But, um, <laughs> Garth Brooks said this, you aren't wealthy until you have something that money can't buy. And here's the reality. Your ultimate, your long-term significance is everything to do with whether or not you've connected with God. You could have everything, yet have nothing if you haven't connected with God. Maybe some of you here today are distant from God. I'm not asking have you been religious. I don't mean have you been confirmed or... Uh, have you been christened as a kid or did you grow up in a Christian home? Nothing to do with any of that. That's not, that means nothing. What means everything is do you have a relationship with the God who made you? 
if you have a relationship with the God who made you, and every day you choose, I'm going to live for that God, the God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you and rise again, if you're alive in him, then you're eternally alive. And your wealth can come and go, but you will live forever. That's the biggie. Wealth is temporary. Financial fact number three, human value has nothing to do with financial status. Okay, going into James chapter two now. James two verses one to nine. My beloveds, my beloved, my brothers. What? My beloveds? Anyway. My brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. <laughs> That's ultimate arrogance, isn't it? Stand over there. Or sit by my feet. <laughs> Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him, uh, of, of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You do right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Here James highlights two major problems. Number one, James chapter two, verse four says, you have, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Discrimination and judgmentalism. According to James, there's utter, utterly no place for discrimination and judgmentalism in church or among believers. To be honest, in the world, as a community of God's people, there is no acceptance for this kind of nonsense among us. Now, we might not be as extreme as someone who says, you stand there or sit at my feet. I mean, that's kind of arrogance to the extreme. It's very overt. And I think that went on in James's culture. But the reality is we can nevertheless be discriminatory and be judgmental towards other people for a wide variety of reasons. First of all, because, we, because of financial status. That's one of the reasons we can discriminate against people. The word used to dis, for discriminate here in the Greek language is the Greek word diakrikno, which means to separate, make a distinction, or to discriminate, to prefer one person over another. To withdraw from someone or to desert someone because there's something different about them. To separate oneself in a hostile spirit, to oppose, to strive with, to dispute or to contend with. I remember as a teenager, having just become a believer, um, I, I was in town one day. I mean, some of you know the story. It, this impacted me so powerfully. I was at 16 years old. Me and my friend Brian were walking through Glasgow City Centre. It was middle of a Saturday afternoon. There was a homeless guy there. He stunk of pee. He was begging and he was in a wheelchair. He was not the kind of guy I typically hung out with. But my friend Brian, who had better moral character than I did, I was an arrogant, stuck-up snob. 
into myself, highly aware of what people thought of me rather than what God thought of me. I was just a new believer. And there was this guy stuck in this wheelchair, and my friend Brian said, can we take it, do you want to go for some lunch? And I was thinking, don't go for lunch with the guy, say someone sees us. So I, I literally, I kind of hung back at maybe two or three paces behind them as Brian wheeled the guy through, went into the senior center, and we got the guy some lunch, and I kind of sat at the table begrudgingly. <clears throat> anyway, after that, I thought, right, we've done our good deed for the day, let's get on with hanging out in, as teenagers in the city. But then Brian, my friend, proceeded to hang out with this homeless guy for the rest of the afternoon. And I tagged along, feeling highly awkward, highly self-aware, hoping that none of my friends from school saw me. And I was meant to be a new Christian. Anyway, I got home that night and opened the Bible to read. And, you know, I was going through Bible reading notes that I'd been given. And that particular night's reading was Luke 16, the second part of the chapter, where it talks about a man called Lazarus, who was a poor man who, who was horrible to look at. He had sores all over him. And it talked about a rich man whose gate Lazarus lived at. And it talked about this poor man and the rich man and how the rich man discriminated against the poor man all his life. And at the end of their life, they died and the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven. And it dawned on me, not so subtly, that God was speaking to me. It was like, thwap. God winded me. I got on my knees and I repented for being such an arrogant, stuck-up toff into myself and not caring about other people's situations. The situation is, I repented for that, but some of you haven't. Some of you are arrogant, stuck-up toffs into yourselves and arrogantly discriminate against other people who are not like you. And it's time we repented. I changed my attitude towards people. Because human beings are all created in the image of God. No matter what they smell like, no matter what the financial situation is, the reality is I have no idea what that man had gone through in life. I don't know what he was like when he was a 16-year-old. I don't know what abuse he suffered. I, I haven't walked in his shoes. How on earth can I judge the guy and put him down, assuming that I would have been any different? I might have been worse. I might not have even been alive at his age. He's maybe, he's, he was maybe a survivor. Good on him. But there was me discriminating against him. You see, we, do, we discriminate, in th- I'm going to highlight three ways. There are many ways, but I'm going to highlight three ways. First of all, don't let a person's financial situation cause you to be prejudiced against them. James 2.2, suppose a man comes into a meeting wearing gold rings, fine clothes, and poor, sorry, a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man shabby, in shabby clothes comes in as well. You see, in those days, people demonstrated their wealth in many ways. One of the key ways that people demonstrated the wealth in James's day was with the rings on their finger. Oftentimes, Jewish people had rings literally on every finger, and this was a sign of their wealth and affluence. And um, it's also the case that some people who wanted to be seen as wealthy would rent rings, and they would put rings on their fingers to appear to be wealthy. Because the fact is, if you're wealthy, you have a bit more influence than people who don't have wealth. And that's an observed fact. Um, Richard Foster's book, Money, Sex, and Power, Uh, which is an excellent book. He talks in that book about how people with wealth are actually influential people. People listen to people with wealth more. Now, that's not good or bad. That's just a fact. But what was happening in the early church was people were uh, wearing their rings, flaunting their rings, pretending they were more important, trying to get people to listen to them more than people who didn't appear so wealthy. It would be like you renting a Porsche 911 
and turning up at church. Hi, ladies. Uh, expecting to have some influence or turning up at your office, expecting to, you know, people to pay attention to you because you've just hired in wealth, made yourself look good. And that's what was going on here. Because the re- reality is riches often blind us. Riches make us prejudiced in a way that we should never be. Riches cause us to act with people in a different way than we would with other people who have nothing. And that's wrong. Because we should let the values of, that God puts in our hearts dominate our thought patterns more than the values that the world imposes upon us. <clears throat> there was a teacher one day stood up in the classroom. And she distributed to all the kids in the classroom titles. And, one of the t- and, and she, she handed out the titles to the kids. And she told them to organize themselves in order of importance. So the first title was astronaut. And the first kid got the astronaut. I thought, hey, I got it. And then the next kid got pro football player. Then the next kid got doctor, and then there was janitor, then there was baby, then there was mum, then there was lawyer, and there was rock star. And all the kids got their, their little labels, and the teacher said, now I want you to organize yourself in order of priority. Who is the most important? So the kids start debating, and the astronaut says, I'm the astronaut, I go into space, I'm the most important. And the rock star says, push over. I'm already in space, bro. <laughs> and apart from that, I earn mega bucks. And then the, the pro footballer comes along and said, not as much as me, baby. And he stands in and he says, I'm the most important. And then the mum says, but I gave birth to you all. Then the baby pipes up and says, um, but you were once one of me, mum. In the meantime, the janitor kind of hangs around at the back knowing his place. Then the doctor pipes up and said, well, I brought you all into the world. Then the lawyer said, but I'll sue you for malpractice. (laughs) So they all try and get themselves into order of what they consider was more important. And after 20 minutes of dialogue and debate, they got themselves in a line. But then the teacher said, actually, all I wanted you ever to do was to stand in a circle and hold hands. Because there never has been or ever will be a more important person than another. I believe human beings are equal. And I'm convinced of that. Nothing to do with your financial status. The second area we allow ourselves to become bigoted and prejudiced is do not allow a person's religious, cultural, or racial backgrounds to cause you to be prejudiced against them. The Bible is strong on equality because God is strong on equality. It says in Romans 2, verses 9 to 11, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory and honor for the pe- and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Listen, for God does not show favoritism. In other words, when it comes to Jews and Gentiles, when it comes to someone's religious backgrounds or non-religious backgrounds, God shows no partiality. God does not show favoritism. You know, the, the, the world we're living in is a vastly changing world. The Western world I'm talking about here, specifically Scotland and Edinburgh. The Daily Telegraph in April 2008 said that within a generation, immigration will add the equivalent of a city the size of London to the population. In other words, we're going to experience major expansion of population because of immigration to the UK. Mission Scotland published a report recently in March 2008. And in that report, they talked about many different things going on in Scotland. It's an excellent report if you want to go download it from the Mission Scotland website. 
But one of the things it talks about is immigration. And it says that the population of the UK, classed as non-white, is projected to grow from 9% in 2001 to 29% by 2051. Multiculturalism, immigration, social cohesion, segregation, and extremism are top of the public agenda, according to lead academics. These are the issues of the day. Here's a chart that shows you um, from, from government surveys the racial prejudice in the UK. If you want to pr- hit the next slide, guys. Just whenever you're ready. Thanks. What we can see is we can see there's been a... Racism in the UK has been on the drop until recently. Where just after the millennium, there's been a recent upsurge. In, and you can see it's quite a sharp upturn. And why is that? Well, I think it directly correlates with the the amount of immigration in our country. So what should our stance be on this? Do you know what? The Bible, throughout the Bible, encourages us to love aliens and foreigners. And when it's talking about aliens, it's not talking about little green people, right? It's talking about uh, people who are from different countries or different cultures or even different religious backgrounds. The Bible is really strong in this, encouraging us to love people who are not like us. You know, in Destiny Church, uh, there are nearly 40 different nationalities represented here in the Edinburgh Church. Shout out some of your nationalities. Where are you all from? America? South Africa? Nigeria? What? Poland? Zimbabwe? England? Scotland? Yeah. Hey, cut it out. No, no nationalism. Okay. What? Brazil, yeah. Who what? Guyana. Greenland. Finland. Philippines. Was that Philippines? Philippines. Malawi. Northern Ireland. Okay. That was very funny. Go there was a, where else? Sweden. Sweden. Germany. Germany. Zambia. Zambia. Malaysia. Malaysia. Uganda. Uganda. Greece. Greece. Portugal. Portugal. Orkney. Orkney. <laughs> 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 Have they got their independence now, yeah? Okay. Okay, how exciting, folks. Honestly, where else do you get this? That's really cool. Where else do you get this? Well, you're going to get it in heaven. That's, that's one place. The Bible says there will be a multitude that no one could number of every tribe, nation, and tongue before the throne. That's exciting. That's what the future looks like. So we're living actually a bit of heaven on earth. That's church. That's exciting. Now, the problem is we might not make the most of it. That's the problem. You might just think, uh, I'm not racist, but you hang out with people just like you in this church. Sounds racist to me. You're all just a bunch of cliques. Doesn't sound like you're maximizing the opportunity, folks. How about you build bridges with people who are totally not like you? Their food tastes far better than your food. <laughs> Honestly. I- I'm serious. How about 
you hang out with people who are just not like you? How about you build bridges with people who are so different to you in their backgrounds, in their age group, in their culture? Go learn. Go learn. I really believe that there is no space for racism in Destiny Church Edinburgh, let alone the Church of Jesus Christ in general. You know, British people, some British people, certainly an older generation of British people have still grudges against the Germans. That's not acceptable. And it's not that we condone what the Germans did, but we also have to realize the British have done pretty bad stuff ourselves. And our problem is not with a race, our problem is with humanity. And Jesus came to die on the cross to deal with that problem. Or you might be South African, whatever side of the fence, black or white South African, and you're holding grudges against other people who are South African. Maybe you knew people who had died in the conflicts and the troubles. Maybe you personally felt the oppression. Maybe you don't like what's going on just now. But nevertheless, human beings are human beings, and you didn't choose where you were born, neither did they. So cut out racism. It might be the case that you are unemployed just now, and you're angry at immigration happening in the UK, and you're unemployed specifically because someone took your job because they undercut you. And I can understand you're upset, but it's not their fault. So don't hold a grudge. We welcome people from all different countries and cultures. Welcome to the UK. Welcome to Destiny Church. Don't get grudges. Be humble. Love people. The fact is, if you had, for example, let's take Romania. If you had lived in Romania under Ceausescu, and you'd been told there's no gods, and you'd seen the impact that had on healthcare and education, and you'd seen the dive in the economy, and there was no hospices for people dying painfully with all sorts of diseases that was no treatments available for, and you, are, and you have now an opportunity to come to the UK to earn some good money to send back for your family, do you not think you would be taking responsibility in doing what they're doing? Do you not think? Right, so it's easy to judge on our side of the fence, but we've got to understand that actually people are living various lives and we've got to have space for people and love people. Really important. Hang out with people who are so not like you. I remember when uh, we just started the church in our flat at Haymarket and it was in that, when I was living in that particular flat, a couple moved in and they, I was cleaning my car outside the flat, kind of in the parking lot. And this Indian couple arrived kind of heavily laden with hand luggage and so forth and so on. And they arrived at my stairwell door. So as I opened the door and said, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, and I introduced myself. And then I offered to take their luggage for them. So I carried their, because they'd obviously been, they were pretty exhausted. They'd obviously traveled a long distance. And I, I carried their luggage for them up the stairs. That's all I did. Just, I thought that was just a neighborly thing to do. Anyway, for, for them, that meant a huge amount because they'd been in Britain for many weeks. And this is the first bit of kindness they'd been shown. So they're Hindus, and they have me and Angie around for a curry. And what a curry. <laughs> I mean, really, that was a curry to remember for several days. <laughs> that curry. That, and I don't, know, I, don't know if the, I don't know what went on, but they didn't give us any, anything to put the fire out with during the meal. They gave us a drink before the meal. We had to ask, any possibility we could get a, a glass of water or something just now? It was a hot curry. But I like hot curry. But it nearly killed us, but it was so worth it. <laughs> anyway, they came to church with us, Destiny Church, when we were still in the little school in, in Tollcross. We moved out the flat, moved to the school, and at the end of the meeting, 
I was preaching about Jesus. Um, and at the end, I gave people the opportunity, as I will at the end of this service, does anyone want to give their life to God and accept Jesus? And that, that dear lady, Sheshi, her name was, she committed her life to Jesus, having been a devout Hindu, worshipped millions of gods, literally, for many years. She accepted Jesus. And in that moment, she experienced the power of God on her body. She had a sensation. She had an experience with God at the end of that meeting. She, and at the end of that meeting, and we, we stayed good friends with them, and they moved back to India. But you know what? She always refers back and says, Peter's God is the true God. Now, sure, I preached the message, but it started with me just carrying their luggage. See, the third way we often show prejudice, and we, we must not, is we, we let a person's moral situation cause us to be prejudiced against them. And this is not what Jesus allowed to happen. It says of Jesus in Mark 2.17, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Destiny Church Edinburgh is not here to entertain Christians. We exist to reach the unchurched, the disenfranchised, those who are far from God. That's why we exist. That's our heartbeat. We're passionate about introducing people to God. Not taking people from other churches, but introducing people to God. This is what Jesus did. In Luke 7, 34, this is people's accusation of Jesus. I'm sure Jesus took it as a compliment. They said of Jesus, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus hung out with so many reprobates, so many drunkards, so many immoral people that he got this reputation of being a friend of sinners. And I, I'm sure he held that badge with honor because sinners was his mission. And he died on the cross for sinners because he loved them that much. That's why I'm so glad to be his friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners. So do you know what? At Destiny Church, no matter what your sin issue, welcome to Destiny Church. Honestly, you think, but Peter, you don't know what I've gone through. You'd really be surprised. There's not much that shocks me these days. I've heard it all. I know many of you have done all sorts of sins. For example, no. <laughs> I could, but I won't. But many of you have got into all sorts of stuff. Peter, what about homosexuals? Are you homophobic? I have to say, I'm not in the slightest bit scared of my home. <laughs> but apart from that, people with homosexual tendencies, you're already in this church. Welcome. I know you are. And there are many of you have committed adultery. Many of you are living immorally. Many have done all sorts of other stuff that I won't even mention. Many of you have been aggressive. Many of you have been out of prison. Many of you didn't get caught. So it seems like you're fine, but God knows. And you know. It's nothing to do with what you've done or what, what, where you're at. It's to do with where you're going. And I'm not excusing any sin. I hate sin. I hate your sin. And I detest my sin. I detest my sin. I'm broken about my sin. I'm gutted that I sin. I hate offending God. But because I'm gutted about my sin, I can understand that God accepts sinners. And you know what? You're so welcome. I'm not making excuses for any of your sins, just as I'm not making excuses for my sin. Sin is horrendous. Sin needs to be repented of. Whatever you call your sin, repent. And I say the same to myself. But whoever you are, welcome. Welcome. God loves you. So do we. 
And just as I experience God's grace, you do too. I want to be the perfect church for imperfect people. That's our vision. That's what we're about. Okay, I want you to take a moment on your, on your informed booklets there. On the inside, there's an opportunity at the top right. Write down the area that you are most prejudiced in. And we've covered some areas. But write it down. Now, you might not want to write it too overtly because you're aware someone's looking over your shoulder. <clears throat> you might want to go, look, look, look at me. This is mine. People like you. You, know, you might not want to do that. So maybe you want to just put an initial down or just um, put an initials of the issue. Like, um, uh, don't like young people. Right? D-L-Y-P, right? So, but, but write something down. Write down what is your issue. Okay, God, we pray for these issues. We pray for every one of these issues. God, you know how horrendous these issues are. We're even appalled that we had to write it down. And God, we're asking you, mold our hearts, melt our hearts. Let us love like you love. All human beings are equal in the sight of God. And I pray that that will be our heartbeat just as it is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, folks, I'm just aware I've got so many points to cover here and I don't think we're going to finish in time today. Well, sorry, maybe I'll just not finish the message. I reckon we're going to have to cut short what I'm going to share. But let me just hit a few more points that will help you. James, as well as giving us three bits of financial advice, he also gives us four financial warnings. The first financial warning that James gives us is this. Avoid a wrong accumulation of wealth. James 5 Verses 1 to 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep, wail, because of the misery that is coming upon you. For your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes, and your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Thanks for your words of encouragement, James. He's, he's really not lightweight when it comes to these issues, is he? He's just hardcore. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. The big indictment here against the wealthy people here is this in James 5 3 you have hoarded wealth in the last days God is against us stockpiling money for the sake of having money just hoarding for the sake of hoarding stockpiling for the sake of stockpiling holding on to just because we want to hold on to God's against that now that is different to having savings the Bible teaches that savings is a positive thing Proverbs 13.22 and Proverbs 13.11. Two examples where savings and leaving an inheritance for your children are positive things. But it's different to hoarding. Hoarding is about insecurity. Hoarding, holding on to, is about you not trusting God enough and also you not being generous enough towards others. That's this, the horrible issue that James is tackling here. <clears throat> there was a story of a, a true story of a man called John G. Wendell. 
And he and his sisters were incredibly wealthy. They inherited a fortune, many, many millions of pounds from their parents. But John G. Wendell managed to persuade five of his six sisters to live with him and not get married and to live in in a house in New York City and literally not spend, but just to hold on to the money. After many, many years, they all died, and eventually the last sister died. And when she died, it was discovered that she had only one change of clothes, and she had made those clothes. They had no gas, electricity, or phones, or televisions. They had all this money. They had hoarded this money. They would refused to give any or to use any. They had literally stockpiled it. And they died. They had been wealthy, but they lived like poor people. It was utter folly. In the New Testament, there were three prominent ways people could hoard their wealth. The way that they could look at, keep their wealth without investing it in any other way. James 5, uh, in verses 2 to 3, we read, it says, Your wealth is rotten, and the moths have eaten your clothes, and the gold and silver are corroded. You see, people to hoard their wealth would either invest in food, would invest in clothing, or would invest in gold and, or precious metals or jewels. That's how people held onto their wealth in those days. You see, what you accumulate will deteriorate. It will slip through your fingers. You hoard it, but it, it, it evades you. God wants it in circulation, but you've stockpiled it. You see, what are the clothes that get moth-eaten? Is it the clothes you wear every day? No. It's the clothes that you hide in cupboards and never wear. You stockpile them. What's the food that goes off and becomes moldy and rotten? Is it the food you eat every day? Or is it the out-of-date stuff you've got in the back of your fridge for three months that was well out of date even, even like two months ago? You know, I don't know about you, but I've created new life forms in my fridge at times. <clears throat> it's the stuff that we hoard that becomes rotten. Wealth that is not used, hoarded wealth, is God is against there's an example of this in Luke chapter 12, where a rich man in Luke 12, verses 18 to 21, he's doing very well for himself, and this is what he says. He says to himself, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of thing, good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night, very night, your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Repeat that last bit after me. But is not rich towards God. Say it after me again. But is not rich towards God. That's the ultimate negative indictment against this wealthy man. This wealthy man, it's nothing to do with him having wealth. It's the issue is wealth had him and wealth was causing him to love it hoard it, hold on to it. He did, his security was wealth, not God's. The hope of his future was not in God's. His hope of his future was in his wealth. And that's a man who's poor. That's a poor man. And also he ignored the needs of those around him. That's a poor man mentality. <clears throat> the second financial warning James gives us is the wrong acquisition of wealth. God's not, only conce- God's not concerned about what we have necessarily. He's more concerned about how we got it. In the New Testament, people worked on a daily basis. You know, it wasn't common 
for working class, remember I said there was the rich and there was the poor. There wasn't the middle class. There was the two divides in the New Testament times. So if you were not the rich, then every day you were hoping you would get work. That was how it was. You didn't have long contracts. Every day you went into the public place and you would hope that someone would hire you that day for work. Often you'd get workers gather. A wealthy person would come along. He would gather the workers. He'd put them to work. And at the end of the day, he would pay them their wages. That was how it was. If you didn't get work, you didn't get paid that day. They didn't have any unions, no pension plans, no contracts. It was every day hand to mouth. Now, what was often happening was inscrupulous wealthy people who didn't have a, a, a good moral fiber in them. What they would do is they would take your work, but at the end of the day, they would say, I didn't like your work. You get nothing. Even though they took your work from you, they didn't pay you. And this is what James was challenging. It says in James 5, 4, look, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And an encouragement if you're a boss here today, or if you're aspiring to be a boss, make sure pay wages. Make sure you care for your staff. Don't use and abuse. Treat people well. The reality is you treat them well, they're going to do well. They're going to enjoy working there. They'll be more loyal to you. They won't jump ship. But the Bible's strong in this. You know, we're, and this is happening all the time in our world. The construction industry, especially in the UK, is full of this. Where if you're a subcontractor, and you know, maybe something's going wrong in the job, or the, the main contractor needs to make savings, then you don't get paid. You have several rings down the pecking order and, and you just don't get paid or your invoice comes in like a year late or you've got to have to take them to court to try and get your money out of them because they haven't paid your wages and the reality is you need to pay people who've got families and so on this happens all the time and it's immoral the third financial warning James gives us is the wrong allocation of money how we spend our money James 5 5 You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Do you know what? This world, I believe, has been designed by God in such a way that every human being, no matter how many there ends up being, every human being should be able to have abundance. That's my worldview. I believe that. I believe the world designs God made this world to be able to sustain, not just cause the survival of, but the thriving of his creation. I believe that. I believe he created a world of abundance, a world where there's more than enough to provide for the needs of those who inhabit it. That's the world we live in. The world, the resource issue is not the issue. The issue is distribution. The issue is injustice. And because of injustice, and as a result, poor distribution of wealth and resources, then the poorest of the poor suffer, and the wealthiest of the wealthy end up living lavish lifestyles. And according to the Bible, this is not acceptable. In America, apparently there are 20 million dogs, and 73% of them are overweight. That's funny, but it's sad. It's really sad. And yet, the world is in need. 
W. Graham Scroggy said that there are two ways in which a Christian may view his money. How much of my money shall I use for God? Or how much of God's money shall I use for myself? That's a good rule of thumb. Now, I'm going to read you a Bible verse, which I believe is a Bible verse written for all of us. It's written to rich people. Up until today, you may not have seen yourself as a rich person. But I'm just saying statistically, every one of you is rich. Remember I said at the beginning, half of the world's population, three billion people, earn less than £1.20 a day. Right? If you earn more than £1.20 a day, now, if you just walked around the street and looked hard enough, you'd earn more than that. It, you know, not one of you in this room earns less than £1.20 a day. So already you're wealthy compared to half of the world. So I believe this Bible verse is written for us. And this is what the Bible says to us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. Instruct those who are rich. Who's that? Who's that? Okay, this Bible verse is for you and for me. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God's who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Here the Bible writes to us as rich people, as Westerners. And you know what the Bible says to us? The Bible encourages us, don't fix your hope on uncertainty of riches. In other words, don't be a rich, poor person. Be a rich, rich person. If you're going to be rich, then don't allow your riches to be your security in life. Don't allow it to blind you. Don't allow it to make you shallow spiritually. But be a a person who's at spiritual depth. Be a person whose security is God, who gave you the provision in the first place. That's an important point. The next thing it encourages is this. Let your hope be fixed on God, who generously gives us all things to enjoy. That's what the Bible says. He gives us all things to enjoy. Do you know what? God has no problem with you enjoying your wealth. This Bible verse doesn't say, instruct those who are rich in the world to give all their belongings away. It's not what the Bible says. It says, instruct the rich people to enjoy their wealth. Because that's part of why God gave it to you. He gives you wealth. He provides for you. Why? Because he loves you. And he likes you being blessed. He has no problem with you going on a holiday. He has no problem with you having a car. He has no problem with you having luxuries. He has a problem if your life is consumed with those things. He has a problem if your hope is fixed on those things. And he has a problem if you're ignoring the world around you. But he has no problem if he prospers you for you to enjoy some of that prosperity. It's like an apple. The outside of the apple is for enjoying And the inside of the apple is for throwing away so the seeds can go into ground and so another apple tree can go so the more apples are produced by which many are sustained. And what we often do is we eat our seed rather than sowing our seed. We consume everything on ourselves. Instead of asking ourselves how much of uh, my money will I give to God, we, uh, we should be asking how much of God's money will I use in myself and how much of God's money also will I give back to God. 
How much of God's money will I allow to be used for positive, noble purposes? These are the questions we should be asking. And uh, the Bible encourages us to be generous, to be rich in good works, and generous and ready to share. Rich people, listen to me. Be generous. Give away stuff. Bless people. Be ready to share. Now, you could do that in many ways. As a church, we support a number of really quality charities. Uh, today, Sally, give us a wave at the back, Sally. Sa- Sally's down at the, visit, uh, sorry, the, the bookstall there. Sally represents, she's a Scottish representative for JAM, Joint Aid Management. This is the charity we get behind. In fact, today, uh, do you want to throw that up to me? Stephanie. <coughs> Cheers. Here we have here a red jam bowl. It says uh, jam on the inside. And this is the bowls that they feed the kids in Africa with jam. They, f- they feed 500,000 kids a day in these bowls. And they kind of put a porridgey slop thing in it, which has in it all the nutrition you need for life. Anyway, today for lunch, we have porridgey slop available. For, we've only got 60 bowls, right? And you can make a donation and get your lunch in, of porridgey slop in a red bowl. And you can take the red bowl away with you. We'll wash it for you. And you can keep it. And you can remember jam. Uh, now, the porridgey slop is very nutritional. I don't know how tasty it is. And it, Sally, is it tasty? It's lovely. Oh, wonderful. You will love it, folks. It is... What? Have we got any toppings for it, folks? Okay, I'd hope maybe I had some honey or raw slop. It's available. And what we'd ask you is this. Why not... Why not and there's other food available for lunch as well. Don't feel guilty if you have a sandwich, right? Um, I'm serious. It's not about that. You can have slop or a sandwich or they've probably got hot food and stuff available. But why not get some raw slop and just remember what it's all about and you could donate three pounds for this bowl and slop three pounds will feed a kid for a month or you could donate 36 pounds and that'll feed a kid for a year or you could donate 360 pounds for your bowl of slop it's the most expensive bowl of porridge you'll ever have eaten in your life but that will feed 10 kids for a year or you could pay 3.6 million for your bowl okay and so on and so forth Depends how wealthy you are. But you could buy a bowl of slop for lunch. And uh, you might want to do that. So that, they're available at the back. Is that right? Are you serving slop, Sally? The catering team are. Fantastic. Thanks. Cash. Okay. So you, 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 we, we support great charities and encourage you to get behind these charities. You don't just need to give to the charities. Every year we, we make opportunities for giving to these charities. But you can give independently as well. But you know what? Sometimes, actually, giving to the poor isn't just about sending money and getting others to do our job for us. Do you know that? Sometimes we need to go with our money. Because there's something about, not just a cold gift, there's something important about eye-to-eye contact. There's something important about touch. There's something important about kind words. Something really important about that. Next, Next summer... Summer 2010, we're going to send as many mission trips to Johannesburg to work with JAM, to work with AIDS orphans in the townships there. Some of you might want to consider that advance notice. We'll give you more notice of that in a couple of weeks' time. We'll talk more about that in detail. But there's all sorts of ways. But maybe also on your doorstep, I believe this, and I'm convinced of this. Just as when I was 16, God brought a man across my path that I did not treat well. I believe God will actually bring across your path 
people that he wants you to personally bless. It's not just about, oh, I've sent my money, I've done a bit for charity this week. No, no. God will bring someone across your path that he wants you to love and personally invest time or money in it. Pay their bills for them. Clear their debt for them. Go out the extra mile for them. Do something for them. Jesus said, to whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I believe God will personally send people along your path. You'll see them eyeball to eyeball and they'll have a need that you can meet. And I really believe God's calling us to be a church that meets the need globally and locally on our doorstep, loving people, demonstrating the love of God for human beings. Fourthly and finally, hey, I have finished, I can't believe it. Avoid the wrong application of wealth. How we use money is important to God. You know, money brings influence. We said that earlier. The question is, are you using your influence well? In James's time, people weren't. James 5, 6 says, you've murdered, you've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Apparently, in James's time, people were bribing. That rich people could get away with murder, literally, in court. They would pass a bribe to the judge and innocent people would be condemned. If they had something against someone, they would take them to court, they would bribe the judge, and they would get away literally with murder. And James is saying, this is not acceptable. And you know what? We've got to make sure we use our financial influence positively. Bribery is not acceptable. Now you might think, well that doesn't happen in our culture. It does in different ways. I I know some of you couples here, before getting married, your parents told you, if you marry that guy, you're out of your family's inheritance. That's bribery. I I know, I I can think of several couples in this church who have faced that. But however it's manifest, people use money to leverage people to do what they want them to do. And that's not how you should use your money. Here's how you should use your money to influence. Use it to influence, as I said earlier, locally and globally. To meet the needs. To help people understand there's a God in heaven who loves them, who motivates you to love people as well. In conclusion, what can we do about the rich-poor divide? Well, the fact is, we can't do nothing. One thing I believe in is the local church. I believe that one of the things that we can all do is be local church. Give to your local church and the local church will use resources to impact, mobilize and change things locally and globally. Be part of a local church where you are part of a community with, I'd say, almost 40 nations, if not more, represented. Where we're part of a culture within the culture showing what unity yet diversity can look like to a city that is divided. That's an important thing. What will make Destiny Church relevant in Edinburgh? I'll tell you. Because we are a microcosm of Edinburgh who just happen to all get along well with each other and love each other. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Jesus prayed, let them be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world will pay attention when it sees a church in love with each other. Not as some holy huddle, but as a church that has open arms welcoming anyone who comes through the doors, no matter who they are, no matter what their past, good or bad, has been. Be church. And I want to encourage you, don't be flaky in your commitment to church. You know, we're living in a a culture where actually 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in Edinburgh are, are mature Christians, but they're not actually going to church anymore. And the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. God believes in the church. God's building the church. And you are a precious individual part of church. Be regular at church. Be committed to the people in this church. Don't be on the fringes. Be part. Connect. Give to the church. Serve in the church. Love the people in the church. And from the church, let's love the city. Let's give to the city. Let's impact the city. We've only got one life. Why not just we use it radically for God's glory? You know, as a church as well, my vision is that in the years to come, you know, in the last few years we've given, in the last few years I'd say we've given probably the best part of 100,000. And in fact, guaranteed, we've given over 100,000 pounds to missions and international aid. Every year we give at least 10% to missions. And in last year we weren't able to give 10% to missions because of the building refurbishment, we, the building we bought here. But in previous years we've tried to rise to 10% to the poor as well. Wouldn't it be awesome in the years ahead if we were able to give hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to alleviate poverty locally and globally? Wouldn't that be outstanding? Wouldn't that be amazing? And I think it should be possible in a, in a financial center like Edinburgh to be a church that can release big amounts of money to make big impact and big difference globally and locally to alleviate the rich-poor divide. And you might think, well, Peter, it's a drop in the ocean. Well, it's not going to be our excuse. We must do what we can do. Also, maybe some of you want to take radically a personal initiative to do something about third world poverty. I chatted to my friend at King's Church. He's the pastor at King's Church in the city here. And he was telling me that one of, one of the lawyers in his congregation was challenged by a non-Christian friend. He was challenged, are you just going to be a lawyer who makes lots of money or are you going to do something with your abilities? And he took a personal challenge from his non-Christian friends. And today, the lawyer in, this, in, in King's Church has an organization that he set up that runs in three cities in India where they bring people out of slavery or forced prostitution. They prosecute the offenders and they bring the people into a place of safety. This year alone, they've brought 50 people out of slavery and forced prostitution in India. This year alone. As a lawyer, he's still working as a lawyer in the city, incidentally. Does, does it, being a missionary doesn't mean you have to relocate to some, some mud hut somewhere. Being a missionary might mean you live in your nice, comfortable villa. But you do, you've got a different agenda in life. And you're making a difference in life. Actually, sometimes it's more effective to be located here and to do something from here. But think big. Think global. Have a generous spirit. Some of you are thinking, I felt guilty about trying to earn money. I've had this ambition to earn lots of money, and I feel really guilty about that ambition. Well, today, if you've heard the sermon right, you no longer need to feel guilty about earning lots of money. You can think, man, it's not enough. I can earn so much more money because I could do something with this money. And if someone... Someone came to me and said, Peter, if I was to give you several million pounds, what would you do with it? I, I promise you, I have no lack of ideas. It, to be honest, it wouldn't be enough. I have no lack of ideas. Why? Because my head's immersed in a world that's bigger than this world. The need is colossal. And the answer is awesome. So make your millions. But have a different motive other than just you. Think global. Think for the glory of God and make an impact in this world. 
I'm going to end with this story. George Truett, who I think was the, one of the first pastors of Dallas First Baptist Church, which became, was one of the biggest churches in the world at the time, an awesome pastor. He was out for a meal with a very wealthy Texan, owned lots of property and many businesses. And after the meal, he took him out by horseback and they went to a high point on his lands. And from this vantage point, the wealthy oil tycoon pointed to George Truett and pointed to the north and said, see these oil fields with the, the, the gas pipelines penetrating through the, the landscape? All of that I own. There was a point when I had nothing and I own all those. Then he pointed to the south and there was grazing lands and there was herds and there was cattle as far as you could see. He said, all of those cattle I own. Then he pointed to the hills and pointed to the forestry and he said, as far as you can see there, I own all that. And he pointed down and he said, all the property you see down there, that's mine as well. And George Truett said to the man, that's fantastic. You've done very well for yourself and you've worked very hard. But then he pointed up and he said, how much do you own in this direction? And the wealthy man said, that's a good point. I hadn't considered that. Rich yet poor? Or are you rich and rich? Let's pray. Lord God, we see the hard-hitting verses from James that literally rip us to shreds on the inside. They challenge our motives. They analyze our approaches to life. They criticize us when we're into ourself. God, we approach the Bible with humility. We don't assume that we can master it. We want it to master us. We want it to dissect our lives. We want it to challenge us in the deepest areas. We approach your word, God, with humility. And we ask God, change us as a church. Let the verses we've read today, let the challenge that's been brought today from James go deep into our spirits, deep into our psyche, and change our approach to life. Change our approach to people. Change our approach to you. Change our approach to our money. And God, I pray, I pray in the years ahead, God, and this year, enable us, God, to be those who love people and do everything we can to show the love of God to the people you have created. God, thank you that human beings are equal because we are created in your image. God, you created us with value. You created us with with great detail. And I pray that we will treat every single person as someone deserving of respect, dignity, love, and adoration. Soften our hearts, God. Change our prejudices. Okay, respond to God. Talk to Him. If there's been a challenge that's touched your life, talk to Him about it just now. Make changes.
while we're in God's presence, I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you're distant from God, if you are out of relationship with God, the good news is that God loves you and he demonstrated that love by him coming. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born and at the end of his life, he died on a cross for you. He shed his blood for your sins to be forgiven. And that event that took place 2,000 years ago, it is as relevant now as it was 2,000 years ago. He rose again on the third day and he's alive and he can right now save you. He can give you a new start. He can wash you from your sin. He can bring you back to a relationship with God. And he can give you an eternal life. If you're distant from God, then I'm going to give you an opportunity just now to come near to him, to put things right with him. I invite you to simply repeat this prayer after me. Quietly under your breath, repeat this prayer. Pray, dear Lord God, you are my creator. And I acknowledge that I have not been following you. I've been living my own way. Ignoring you. God, I ask you to forgive me. For all my sins. For all my corruptions. Jesus, I believe you died so I could be forgiven. Thank you for your forgiveness. I believe, Jesus, you rose from the dead on the third day. I believe you're alive right now. And right now, I make you the Lord of my life. I give you first place. I pledge my allegiance to you. Thanks for hearing my prayer. Thanks for accepting me as your child today. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If anyone prayed that prayer, I want to pray for you. I believe God has heard your prayer. And I would like to add my prayer to your prayer. I'd like to ask God to bless you as you embark on this new life with him. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to pray for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, I can ask you to do a very simple thing. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you at the front or anything like that, but just simply where you are. Could you indicate to me you prayed that prayer by quickly raising your hands so I can see it? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thanks.